This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. One of the many things I love about making this show every week is that I get to chat with people who have not waited for the world to hand them an opportunity and give them courage. Instead, they are out there thinking creatively, making the arts a reality, having an idea and then pursuing it optimistically rather than sitting back and thinking about what might be. And for the next hour, those are the kind of people we get to hang out with, including three women who realised they shared a dream about a new home for music and are making it a reality, and someone who threw herself into the world of improv comedy with no previous acting or comedy experience. Plus, we have a former elementary school principal who swapped the classroom for the stage. I am so grateful that stages are tentatively opening up again, that arts events are creeping back onto my calendar, and that everyone is doing this with health protocols firmly in place. It does, however, make me realise that what my new world wardrobe is missing is a sparkly mask. I should get on that. But first, let's get on with this week's show. Two weekends ago at Roots and Blues, there was an incredible array of local talent sharing the stage with legendary musicians. For a small city, we seem to have an extraordinary level of musical talent. But for an adult learner who wants to learn an instrument or pursue a musical dream, or a child from a low-income background who wants to spend more time than is allotted by their school learning music, where do you go? Well, back in 2007, a non-profit organization was founded by local musicians, music educators and arts advocates called Compass, the mission of which was to offer aspiring musicians, singers and songwriters assistance and a roadmap to help them reach their full potential. And that has manifested itself in summer music camps, workshops, an annual music event called Local Fest and various showcases. But the organization has never had a home base until now. Until three well-known local musicians got together, took a deep breath, signed a lease and put real walls and a roof around their dream. And they are all here with me this evening, Audra Sergal, Violet Vonderhaar and Phil Sean Johnson. Hello, hello and hello. 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 (laughs) Hi. (laughs) You must all be totally giddy with the excitement and potential for this new musical space. Audra, tell me about the conversation over coffee you had with Violet and Phil Sean back in the spring. We had started talking about this a little bit uh, during the the shutdown, pretty much of the pandemic. I called Violet and I just kept thinking of her and of Phil Sean and thinking, boy, I have so many ideas and I bet they do too. And so that initial conversation, the one where Violet, I think she said the hairs on the back of her neck stood up and same for me, like just this has been, there's a vision here and now we just tap into it was kind of the sensation that I got too. And so the coffee that we had really just started, the spring started off from that conversation. I mean, pretty much all three of us, as well as the Compass Board, has had a pretty clear vision of what this space could do. It's just a matter of stepping into it and allowing it to occur. 
Did you have the same ideas? Were there some things that you thought about that Violet was like, oh my goodness, I hadn't thought about that? Were you all on the same page or did it kind of expand as you talked about it, Audra? I think that in general, it's just expanding as it continues because we're recognizing that what this space really can do, specifically thinking of the Compass Camps, how great it's going to be that no one has to tear everything down, that it's just going to have a home base. I mean, just the amount of work, the legwork that I think the three of us have been doing in our own worlds um, before this venture together. I think that part's already allowing the vision to expand, knowing that this is going to be in one place and that just the community support and what that's going to do. Phil, Sean, you've been giving private drum lessons to adults and children for years, and you and Violet have run the annual six-day Compass Music Camp for almost a decade. How much of a game changer is this space going to be for Columbia and Mid-Missouri? Well, we're going to be able to offer all year round programming. One of the things that our students constantly ask for is more. Can we do two weeks? <laughs> Can we do some kind of open mic? Can we get more concert opportunities? So we're excited to be able to allow them to be able to come in and record there and perform there and learn there. What do they do for the rest of the year when you don't have the music camp? Where do they go now? Not really anywhere, or it's very limited to if Cafe Berlin or if Rose Music Hall will book young artists. Um, we um, would try once a year to book a, um, a open mic for the youth in partnership with Darkroom Records. But yeah, it's been very limited on what you know, resources are available to them. A lot of students, um, and I got an email um, recently from one of our campers' parents, where they've been trying for a long time to get others together to just jam. And that's been difficult to keep interest and honestly have a space to do it in where it's comfortable. So yeah, this is a game changer just in the sense that these kids will actually be able to get together. Violet, this is a dream you've had since you were in high school and went to visit the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. What stood out for you during that visit that really sparked this dream? The community aspect of it. I just, I loved the the variety of classes that they were offering and how it really included this wide span of people who were interested in music. And it just felt it felt like a home. I had never, you know, that was my first time being there, but I just felt like I was at home. And that was the kind of environment that I knew that Columbia needed and I wanted to create someday. Audra, your lease is for a 4,000 square foot space in the Mizzou Hillel building on University Avenue. How did you find this space? Well, this is a neat story. So Violet and Phil Sean and I met for coffee. And then I ran into my friend Jill Poutler, who works for Goldie's Bakery. And she and Amanda Rainey are working with Hillel to establish a Jewish baking program. So basically really incorporating Goldie's Bakery and Good Food Inc. into the Hillel Center and having traditional breads and gatherings around traditional Jewish foods. And so they were talking about that and they're working through their kitchen. And my friend Jill said, hey, you want to come check out this space? It's really amazing. It might work for your school and it really will work for the school. And so I called Violet and Phil Sean and we went to look at it. And then we began the beginning, so to speak, and the idea of just 
okay, here we go. So, Audra, when you close your eyes and you stand in the middle, in your, in your mind's eye, and you're just imagining it, tell me what you hear and see. A community and opportunities for kids that I don't see, kids and adults that I don't see right now in Columbia being offered. And lots of great music. I hear lots of great music. And I can already feel when I walk into the space, I can feel what it's going to feel like the first time that we get to activate the listening room and there are people on stage making music and enjoying it. That swells my heart just thinking about it. So Violet, tell me about the different components. Like what is in this space as you envisage it? Well, we've got um, a main open room, which will be transformed into our listening room in the main gathering space. There's a, another room that will be utilized for a classroom, also a music library, and um, for smaller workshops, so songwriter circles and other um, situations like that. And then as you move further to the back of the building, there are already three kind of studio spaces that will be where Phil, Sean, Audra, and I will teach our lessons. But then the back room, right now it's one big room that we're going to cut up into three rooms, and that's where the additional music lessons are going to happen. So altogether, we'll have six teaching studios where um, lessons will happen, and then of course, smaller group group sessions as well. And then also in the front room will be the control room and our front office, and we'll be putting in a, a music studio, recording studio. Phil, Sean, actually, you should maybe talk a little bit about that as that's kind of her idea. Yeah, so the idea is that the entire 4,000 square foot will be wired to be able to tap into the control room and be able to record and say someone wants to do a podcast in one of those rooms, they can just plug in and go. If we have a, a, a band that wants to come in and record a demo, all those different spaces will turn into isolation rooms, as well as that control room will be connected to the stage. So we'll be able to do live sound in there. But also that main room that Violet was talking about will also be a rehearsal room and a classroom as well. So we'll have a smart board in there so we can have workshops and class going on. And there'll be enough room to set up chairs and music stands to have rehearsals. So all of this is expensive stuff. I mean, Phil, Sean, I know you've launched a $50,000 fundraising appeal and in just five days, you've had over 70 donations and raised almost $8,000 already. So besides the public donations, what other funding sources are you exploring to raise the money? I mean, 50000 seems like it's going to go really fast with all the <laughs> things that you want to include in this space. Absolutely. So um, the founder of Compass is Vicki Lighty, and she is a professional grant writer. She's already been working with Audra Violet and I on creating a grant calendar. So we will be submitting to various grants to help with the equipment and furnishings and construction. We've also put in with the Veterans United Foundation to um, help fund those items as well. So we're, we're hoping that between the grants and our community support that we'll be able to open and get the space ready. Where did the 50,000 number come from? Is that like, just think of a number and we'll see if we can get there. Or, you know, I, mean, I mean, there's a lot of equipment that you need. Is that really all available for 50,000? No. So what we, uh, <laughs> we thought we'd start 
in a little bit in a generous uh, small way, but also we were thinking about operational costs with that number. So rent, utilities, and some initial scholarships to start with the funds for um, low-income students. So I imagine <laughs> that number will, will grow. Right. It always does. It's, there's never enough. The, the number you imagine in the beginning is always like, okay, now let's double it. <laughs> right. you finished. Right. So this question is for all three of you. You are all super talented professional musicians who got to where you are without the benefit of somewhere like the Compass Music Center. But how would having a space like what you're creating, how would that have changed your own musical journey? Let's start with Audra. <laughs> I knew you were going to say me. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> you begin with A. Is it A? Alphabetical. Right. So yeah, Phil Sean, you're next. <laughs> okay. Just so you can prepare. You know, when I got out of music school around the year 2000, I wasn't playing music. I had actually stopped playing music by the time I got out of my music program. It wasn't until I met a good friend of mine and uh, my mentor, Sutu Forte, that I started playing again. And she really, it was rehab. I mean, it was musical rehab of coming back to myself, of making music that really felt like me after a long string of a classical music school. And so from the get-go when I was teaching I started my private studio a year after that. So I really, from the very get-go, I wanted to provide something that I hadn't been given. And that's what I think so often about this school is that there are so many amazing things happening musically in Columbia, but for our youth, and especially those not taking a traditional path through classical music, the resources need to be there for them. So I think that that's my thought processes. I I'm really grateful that I met my mentor and kind of had a, when I was in my early 20s, a, a musical rehab for myself. Um, but boy, to have mentors and people help me along the way, that would have been a resource from our community would have been incredible. So I'm grateful for that piece of that. Phil, Sean, what about you? How would this have changed your musical journey? Wow. Well, I would have been able to be around more like-minded people, people who appreciated not only, you know, one specific style of music, but multiple styles of music. I was fortunate to grow up in the church and came up playing gospel music um, as, a, as a young person, but that's a very limited style of music. I'm grateful for the opportunity to play like two or three times a week, you know, but it was the same repetition of music. And then as I got into middle school and high school, I started to learn, you know, classical and marching band music and really fell in love with, with that other thing because it was something different. And some of my buddies um, at the church, we all kind of wanted, longed for being able to play rock music. <laughs> it wasn't something that was accepted or, you know, that we thought we, we could do, but we ended up doing it. And so we found two other friends at another church and that church let us practice in their church every Saturday. So we would go in and set up our gear every Saturday night and, and play for hours. And then we'd have to tear it all down as if we were not there because church was the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that really started my 
hunger for for more, wanting to know more about music, wanting to know how it was put together. And so I moved to Columbia to go to school and eventually made my way into the School of Music and um, learned so much and then started teaching private lessons and was able to help other students find their way. And yeah, I mean, this space it's going to allow all of the students that we've already been working with and students that we don't even know mm-hmm. yet an opportunity to to play and to explore and to to meet each other. I mean, gosh, if it weren't for my buddies, you know, back as a teenager, I don't I don't know if I how where I'd be today because we shared music. It was kind of like a secret, you know, <laughs> that we had. It's like, hey, have you heard of this band? Have you heard of that? And, and it was amazing. And and those guys are are just I, I love them so much just for that. And, and I'll never forget those times. Violet, what about you? How would your journey have changed if you'd had somewhere like Compass Music Center to go to? My story is really similar to Audra's in that, you know, I, I grew up taking classical voice lessons. I was lucky to take folk guitar from Lee Ruth, our local legend folk singer and songwriter here in town. But I always, I just yearned for a space where where my songwriting was more, um, where I could learn to songwrite more and be around others who were doing the same thing my age. You know, I grew up with, with kind of the, the older hippie um, community. <laughs> and so I was this like young little 12 year old girl, you know, <laughs> wanting to write songs and hanging out with the old guys and which was, you know, it was fun. I learned so much from them and that's a part of my story that I, I appreciate. But looking back, if I would have had somebody like myself, that I was learning from, it would have been a game changer. You know, I, I love that phrase of be who you be who you needed. Wait, what is it? Be the person you needed. Be the person you needed. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's how I that's how I teach. And it's it's interesting. It's taking me up until about now to to be okay with with the approach that I have toward teaching because I think there is this very kind of structured way that things happen in classical lessons, which is fine if that's, you know, the direction you want to take. But there was a lot of um, almost kind of shame in, in exploring certain things the way that I wanted to. And so allowing allowing students to explore their own voice in a way that that feels right for them, you know, that that's the kind of space that that I want to create and that I try to create in my in my private lessons. And um, yeah, it would have been a game changer. Phil, Sean, the CompassColumbia.org website talks about you serving a thousand people annually, including 400 youth participants, 100 local musicians. So that means there's another 97 musicians out there who are in your (laughs) sights. Who else is involved in this project besides the three of you? And what conversations have you had with the local music community about this? Yeah, so Audra and Violet and I, obviously we started meeting, but we brought Vicky Lighty in early on to kind of help us get ready to present this idea to the Compass Board, the rest of the members, um, which include Tony Lotvin, Zach Harrison, Ruth Acuff, and Linda Bott. And so... I was kind of nervous because it's, it's kind of a big deal, right? So, <laughs> so I, I wanted to make sure that when we presented that we had some things ready, you know, like, okay, we've got a little budget here. We've got some graphics here. You know, we've got some stuff to, to show them. And they were blown away by how much we had already got the groundwork started. And we just picked up and started going. And um, the four of them have been amazing at just 
being available. Like Tony and I, I think we spoke and met up like every other day for the whole month of September, <laughs> just meeting with contractors and meeting to come up with what we wanted to put in the space. Like we made this spreadsheet that is just like super huge. <laughs> yeah. And coming up with how much those items cost. I mean, I was sending him links from sweetwater.com. Like, okay, this is how much this thing costs. And and then we went, you know, we're trying to figure out how we're going to soundproof the place. So we're looking up all these different soundproofing materials. I mean, it was just like, it, just, it was really fun, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, we... All of us, we've just been really dedicated to the cause and trying to get everything sort of ready for the launch, which happened on the 1st of October, with letting the community know that, hey, we're, we're doing this. And then Violet, the week before, spoke at Roots and Blues as well. So now we're letting everybody know. And, and one of the things that Audra um, created was a volunteer sign-up, which is available on our website and we've already had quite a few people sign up with, hey, I can do this and I'm willing to help. So it's really, it just feels so, so good to be able to present this to our community. So Audra, what is the timeline on the center? You've signed the lease, you have announced the launch, you're raising money. What happens when? When do the doors officially open? You know, that's a great question. I think at this point, we know that we've secured the space. And especially knowing that there are funding, there are pending funding decisions, you know, coming into the center. And so knowing that the availability of funds will be coming in different waves, then the game plan will be to be in 2022, we're thinking by April or May, where it'll be a public kind of thing. But I think that Violet and Phil Sean and I might be teaching in there before, before that, and there may be different programs that come through, but we're really hoping that we can we can have this up and running for the camps and to really launch that. We would love to be able to host our tenth camp year tenth year camp session in 2022. We started in 2012, and the kids are just waiting for it. I mean, when 2020 hit, we were like, "Sorry, guys, Columbia Independent School will not rent to us because of COVID," and mm. it was really you know sad. And then 2021, it's like, well, it's still going. So, you know, it's not, we don't know how things are safe enough to do it yet. So we're hoping that 2022 with our space, you know, we're keeping precautions in mind and we're putting a part of that budget is putting clean air filters in the building and, and social distancing and and requiring masks. Like we want to be able to do this. So we're going to do everything that we can to make it safe. Fantastic. Well, it's almost amazing that something like this doesn't already exist. But the Campus Music (laughs) Centre is at or will be at the Mizzou Hillel building on University Avenue opening sometime early next year. You can find out more about the plans for the new space and their fundraising appeal and volunteer opportunities at campuscolumbia.org. Phil Sean Johnson and Violet Vonderhaar and Audra Sergal, thank you so much for being the captains of such an exciting musical adventure and for taking time to chat today. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Diana. 
Whether Amy Archer Gilligan murdered five or up to 60 residents of her Archer home for the elderly and infirm between 1907 and 1917, we will likely never know. She was only ever convicted of one of them. But her spree of killings is said to be the inspiration for Joseph Kesselring's classic comedy, Arsenic and Old Lace, in which two sweet unmarried aunts help relieve lonely elderly men of the burden of life by slipping them a cocktail of poisons in their homemade elderberry wine. The play opened on Broadway in 1941, featuring Boris Karloff in his first Broadway role, and a few months later was adapted by director Frank Capra into a Hollywood movie featuring Cary Grant as the horrified drama critic nephew of his benevolently murderous aunts, Martha and Abby. Eighty years later, it is still a frequent visitor on community theatre stages, including that of the Columbia Entertainment Company, which opens its production of Arsenic and Old Lace next week and directed by Ed Elsie, who is my next guest this evening. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Ed. Thank you. So I suspect that many people first encounter the stage version of Arsenic and Old Lace via a high school drama club where it remains a popular choice despite its tale of serial murders. What made you want to take it on as a director? Well, interestingly enough, when I was in Lebanon, Missouri, I played Teddy in Arsenic and Old Lace at the production we had in our community theater there. And I've absolutely loved the show. And I had the opportunity to um, be on the play selection committee at CEC. And so I knew it was coming up and I've been watching and hoping that I could get this directorship. And here we are. Well, the play is a classic farce. Besides the two old ladies slipping their elderly gentleman poisoned wine, there is a nephew who lives with them and who you said you just played. He believes he is Teddy Roosevelt. There is the maniacal nephew who returns to the family home after decades away, now looking like Boris Karloff and toting a dead body of his own, along with his accomplice, Dr. Einstein, who is apparently adept at facial reconstruction. Plus, there's a seemingly sane nephew, brother to both Teddy and Jonathan, who is a drama critic has just become engaged and finds himself in the middle of all the chaos. And of course, there is an embarrassment of too many dead bodies in all, all in the same room at the same time and needing to be hidden or heaved out of the window. <laughs> so would you, if you were going to be in it rather than directing it, would you still play Teddy or is there another role that you're secretly desirous of? Oh, no, Teddy is one of my favorite roles. I enjoy being the the comedic actor in the programs and so that is one of my favorite roles to be in well tell us a little bit about teddy what is uh what's his flavor of, of madness he just thinks he, he is the president but yet he still has a childlike quality to him and is just the comedic role because he's not sure if he's in today or if he's in before or at one point he even is showing a picture and he doesn't know if that picture has been taken yet. So he's <laughs> kind of in his own world. <laughs> so you used to be an elementary school principal, most recently here at Locust Street Expressive Art School. And I'm wondering which of your elementary school principal skills has been most useful in directing community theatre actors? Well, definitely maneuvering groups of people around and making sure that we have everybody where they need to be. It is very difficult sometimes to make that happen. And so just trying to balance everything and having a little bit of experience with that has helped. What would you say is your philosophy of directing? 
Well, I'm very much a collaborative director. And so I get the actor's input on what they think is happening. There's a couple scenes where we just couldn't quite make it happen. I tried a couple different things and I just finally said to the actors, I'm like, so what do you all see? How do you see this playing out? And we had a great conversation on just a simple how something shows up on the stage because it doesn't say it in the script how it shows up on the stage. And we were, it didn't feel right. But with that conversation, we were able to pull together uh, the right ideas and get those to life on the stage. So what scene was that? It's where O'Hara, the police officer, is telling his story. And Einstein is supposed to be uh, pouring whiskey from a whiskey bottle. But where did the whiskey bottle come from? <laughs> we had to come up with an entire scenario of where the whiskey bottle came from. Because if it was sitting out, Einstein would have been drinking on it earlier because he likes alcohol. And um, so we couldn't just leave it on the counter next to the table. It had to be somewhere else. So we, we figured out that, well, O'Hara must have brought it in with him. Police officers at that time might have carried a little <laughs> bottle of something with them. And so he brings it in. We have him bringing it with him. It just took a lot of collaboration just to get that one little nuance and get it figured out. There are so many small details in a play. And I was looking through the script that you sent me. And at the end of the script, it has all of the props that you need and it is such a long <laughs> list <Yes. laughs> i know that columbia entertainment company has the most fantastic wardrobe probably of any theater company in columbia and i'm guessing your props cupboard is the same but i mean how how much of all of that list do you actually go after and how much of it does cec have well, CEC had quite a bit of it, but they don't always have matching items. So, for example, for the dishes, I wanted them to match because I felt like in this household, they would, they're very well off. And so they would have dishes that match. So I found some china that didn't cost a whole lot. And so now we have dishes that all match and different things like that. And then um, I guess we just had to create quite a bit of it, but they had the gun for a Hera. They have a a billy club for the other police officer. Somebody else had handcuffs. You know, we just had a lot of things that we we either had, we had it at CEC, but very little of it we had to uh, come up with on our own. Did you have all the costumes? So Franny Schneider is our costumer, and she is doing a fabulous job. When I interviewed for this, my idea behind this was to give this a fresh look, a little more upbeat, um, modern feel to it. And um, we couldn't make it all happen because of our time frame. But Franny has got our costuming such that uh, it could be set in the 70s, 60s and 70s instead of the 40s. So we're giving it a little fresher look there. And she is doing a fabulous job with that. That was one of the things I, I want to ask you about. How do you take a play as a director? How do you take a play that has been performed thousands of times and is by 2021 definitely showing its age a little bit? How do you make it fresh? I mean, you can change the era that it's in. What other things can you do? So we have made the uh, setting. So the house is supposed to be a Victorian setting, but we're just trying to, to give everything a little more of a 60s and 70s feel to it. Um, we can't change the words in it. So, I mean, it still says Hitler and, and stuff like that. But um, we just feel like the, the costuming and the setting um, 
it should give it a, a fresher feel to it. There's a lovely quote by Frank Capra, who directed the movie version in a 1941 New York Times article where he says, with the world in its present state, what's the good of a message? I'd like to give them something to laugh at. And it's strange to look at the timing of that now and think that was just 28 days before Pearl Harbor. So the state of the world was about to get a whole lot worse for Americans. But it also feels like it has a resonance with our pandemic times, that laughing at a farce is maybe what we need to do. I'm curious, you said you were on the play selection committee. Why was this play chosen as part of the 2021-22 season? Well, we were looking for something that would give audience appeal and something that they would recognize. Sometimes we we have plays that um, have different meanings behind them, um, maybe a little edgier, maybe a smaller cast. This one has a nice size cast. Uh, at this time, you know, we didn't know whether we were going to have to be online mm. or not. So we had to find something that if we had to adjust, we could do something like that. But we don't have to do that this time. And uh, it's a play that everybody is going to recognize. And I think there's going to be quite a few people that are going to come see it. The play is 80 years old. Exactly. It was 1941 when it came out. And I believe the copyright was renewed in the late 1960s, which I guess means it is not a public domain work. Does that mean you couldn't make any changes to the original script? And and are there parts that you feel are a little bit too onerous for modern audiences who are maybe used to quicker comedy than a 1940s pre-television audience? Oh, there are some things that I would like to have updated. I mean, I specifically mentioned Hitler and stuff like that. But as far as the comedy part of it, it is spot on. It is. I mean, those of us that are in the play are still have have seen it time and time and time again. And even last night, we are still laughing at the little pieces that we've added to it to make it just that much more entertaining. The Guardian wrote about it. It must have been revived in London relatively recently in the last decade. And and the the critic said, what strikes one most, however, is the amount of surplus flesh American comedy carried 60 years ago. So I guess, yeah, we expect quicker laughs these days, I think. We got used to television sitcoms and things happening quickly. Do you get that sense with this play? You do, because it's like watching a sitcom uh, one of those little series because you never know what's coming next. It's, it's so good with the the humor and the, the naivety of Martha and, and Nora Dietzel just does a fantastic job with that. And, and Nell Cunningham, I mean, we have a great cast and they just really bring it to life. And, and even with, with Mark Baumgartner as a Jonathan and Chris Bowling as Einstein, they just really pull it off. And of course, David McSpadden is uh Teddy, we just have a great cast. And, and that's just that's just half the cast. <laughs> we have so many great people in this cast. You do. And to be honest, I mean, it, the, the play itself doesn't have a huge appeal to me. But when I saw the cast list, it really made me want to come and see it because it is really an incredible who's who of local theatre. Did you have to do any arm twisting to get this cast out? Or was there a long line of people to choose from? You know, whenever we had auditions, the very first night I was sitting there and I was thinking, we can always find lots of women to do plays Mm -hmm. and and musicals and things, but we always struggle with men. And this show has, um, is supposed to have 11 men in it and only three women. And I thought, Oh my gosh, how are we going to make this work? And then in the era of COVID, you know, what if somebody gets sick? What am I going to do? So I was able to balance, um, 
all the lead characters and supporting characters with a understudy. And so we have three police officers, um, I guess four police officers with the lieutenant, but I changed the lieutenant to be a female so that if any of the women were to get sick, we have somebody that could step right into those roles and have seen what we've been doing. And um, they can all just step in and, and, and help out wherever they needed. They have a specific understudy part. So even if an actor has to be gone that night, somebody can step in and run those lines and be that part. And it's really worked out well. I read on someone's social media page that one noteworthy thing about the cast was how fast they all were at getting off book, i.e. they'd all learned their lines. And it made me wonder if this wasn't always the case. What is the usual timeline between casting a play and opening night in terms of rehearsals and people having memorized everything? Well, I like to give everybody about eight weeks between the first rehearsal and, and opening night. I think we had a little bit more than that at this point. And then I want everybody off book. So that the last two weeks, two and a half weeks, we're not on book. We can get where we need to be because like you said, this is a very prop heavy show. And if we weren't off book, we were missing props. <laughs> and so they can't have a book in their hand and and carry a box of toys or a thing of soup and, and salute. And you know, right. it's just a lot of stuff going on. And the ants can't have a, a book in their hand and, and clean off the table with dishes. And, and we call it puttering. We have a lot of puttering going on. But <laughs> yeah, we just had to get off book. And I told them they need to be off book two and a half weeks before opening. And they had things memorized so early that they were trying to be off book even three and a half weeks early. So they were getting their props and we were getting things figured out. And it's really been a blessing. Well, Arsenic and Old Lace opens at Columbia Entertainment Company on October the 14th and runs for three weekends, closing on October the 31st. Maybe a perfect Halloween matinee activity. Seating is limited to 75 seats per performance and audiences are required to be masked throughout. You can find out more about the play at cectheatre.org. And Ed Elsie, thanks for making time to chat today. Thank you. One of the regular performances that I have missed the most over the past 18 months is the formerly bi-monthly Stable Boys Improv Troupe at Talking Horse Theatre. Improv seems like one of the most difficult of the staged arts because it requires impeccable comedy timing and the ability to think lightning fast while standing in front of a theatre full of people who want to be entertained. I have seen improv in multiple cities and although I am far from an expert on the art form, I do think that the stage boys and girls of Columbia, Missouri are a match for the improv troops I have seen in New York, Chicago and Los Angeles. And so I am delighted to see that they are back from their pandemic hiatus this Saturday in a show called The Elephant in the Room. And here to chat improv with me is Stable Girl, Stacey Pottinger. Hello, Stacey. I have missed you. Oh my gosh, we have missed you. We've really missed performing. And what a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. Oh, you are welcome. And it's said from the heart. So how does it feel to be back on a real life stage with your improv kin after, what is it, 18 months away? It was February 29th was our last show on the stage at the Talking Horse Productions Theatre. So we are elated. I had a tiny little experience being on the stage last weekend with the ponies, um, the Talking Horse Productions short form troupe. They were nice enough to let me come do a scene with them to promote our show. And it was 
phenomenal just to be on stage in front of an audience again. We are so excited. We spent most of the quarantine on Zoom practices. And I'll tell you, we got pretty burned out on Zoom practice. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, I think you did two Zoom style improv nights. Yeah, two or three shows on Zoom. And given the level of difficulty that that entails, I think what you did was laudable, but it was definitely a far cry from sitting in a theatre with all of you. I mean, how did you all feel about the Zoom improv nights? So I think the first one, it's interesting because I remember something else I just wanted to say really quickly was that we had just made a decision to do shows every six weeks for the year 2020. So February was our first show and uh, we were so excited to perform every six weeks and then that got completely derailed. But the first Zoom show, we were super pumped and excited. And I remember being in my office performing because my computer is better and nobody was here and I was really loud and I was really excited. I was probably equally excited for that show as I was for any you know other show. But by the third one, we were all getting pretty <laughs> burned out. I know that there were a lot of people at the first one, but it's really hard because you don't you don't know how many people are watching. There's no, you know, response from the audience. So you're just acting to a, you know, a little green dot on your computer screen. And it's just really different and difficult. Well, particularly when, I mean, you're playing for laughs. So you've got no yeah. idea whether anything you're doing is working or just falling completely flat. Exactly. <laughs> I will say by the third one, we, we definitely knew we didn't want to do that again. And honestly, I'd say by the third one, I didn't want to watch it either. Because I mean, it just isn't the same. I mean, because even as an audience member, I mean, you're laughing at the people laughing around you. So it kind of works both ways. I mean, we all needed to hear the laughter too, not not just a... Right. <laughs> just and the you. timing is off. So, you know, you can't, we might talk over each other or it's just a totally different experience. We actually did a, a training with a coach on Zoom and he really helped us to be able to develop some different things that you can use Zoom to your advantage, like getting up close to the camera and interacting with the camera in some different ways and with your playmates in different ways with Zoom in mind. But even after a while, that was not doing it for us. So is improv like riding a bicycle? You just get back on it and it's like it was before? Or have there been some challenges in getting back into the improv groove? <laughs> I'll say that um, we started practicing again in person as soon as we were all vaccinated. And I think we all cried when we first got back together. But without a show on the horizon, you know, we're kind of lackadaisical and we're maybe kind of busy this week and maybe don't want to go to practice. And and, and it was hard. I mean, it, none of us had done anything, you know, in at least a year. And it was really hard to come up with, um, you know, the things you want to do. And then tonight we were talking and saying how one of the difficulties is, is none of us are living normal lives yet. So there's it's hard to find stuff necessarily to pull from mm. because we're not doing the same things that we were doing. Some of us are just doing the same thing over and over again, but we're still not going out and interacting with people in the same way that we were before the pandemic. So in some ways it's like riding a bike, but there is a reason we practice. And uh, I was thinking about talking about practice with you since I'm talking to you after my practice tonight and wondering if you would say, wait a minute, improv practice 
that doesn't count. That doesn't seem fair. Well, strangely enough, that was one of the things I was going to ask you about. Um, but we'll get to that okay. in a minute. I'll hold my thoughts. Because first of all, I just would like to brag on you a little, Stacey. So just blush quietly in the okay. corner for a moment. Okay. So three years ago, I think it was, two or three years ago, you decided that life was too short not to just take a chance. And you decided to overcome a fear, like a fear we all have, and do something you'd long wanted to do and act on stage, possibly even sing on stage and try out for an improv group. And all of this with really no experience. And so I am just endlessly awed by the bravery it took for you to do that. And you will forever have my (laughs) respect. So talk to me about that decision. What made you think this is what I'm going to do. And now is the time to do it. It's insane, I think. No, I I turned 47. And uh, now I'm 50. So it was your your math is right. It was three years ago, I decided I should do some things that I've always wanted to do. And so I took some singing lessons, I took an acting class. And I did I learned to knit. I did a few other things that now that I can't quite remember what I did in that year, but I was doing a bunch of new things for myself. And after the acting class, I think, um, oh, it was Guerrilla Theater with Meg Phillips Crespi. And so they needed, they had some spots to fill in a play. And so I didn't have to try out. I just said, oh, I'll do it. And because with Guerrilla Theater, you don't have to memorize anything. You, you know, you have all the lines on a Kindle. And so I was in and I knew I didn't have to memorize. And I said, you know, I've never, ever done anything acting wise ever. So like, I don't know any of the terminology. I don't know stage left, stage right. (laughs) I mean, I did some like, Oh, like monologue stuff in grade school. I did some stuff like that in little two-person scenes. But I, I really didn't have any knowledge. And I remember I was so nervous that I had water bottles on both sides of the stage because I was just, my mouth was so dry all the time. But I got through it and I... um my good friend Monica, our good friend Monica was in the audience and she was like, you're hilarious. You're really funny. I think you should be, you know, in the stable boys. And she was really my champion. I think they needed someone to fill in a spot that summer. And she really argued to have me try out as sort of a Uh, She just wanted me to come play with them and see how it went. And after about, I think, a month of rehearsals, they uh, asked me to stay. And and then we we did a whole like thing on stage in the middle of the first show that I was in that July. And they asked me to they reenacted really the asking me to join them. They proposed to me. And I said, absolutely. And, and I had, yeah, I've just had so much to learn and I've had such a great, great time doing it. And really, I think back then it was almost, sometimes it was easier because I, I didn't know anything and I was just out there having a great time. And I remember when we started, when I started practicing with them, I thought this is the best thing I've ever done. I just get to play pretend for an hour and a half, once a week or twice a week at that time. And it was just so much fun and they were so supportive and so, so good to me. But now I get in my head a lot more now that I've listened to a lot of podcasts about improv and I, I read and I, you know, I do all this research about it. And it sometimes I get in my head, I had a practice about a, a month ago where I was just had this freak out 
and I couldn't do anything. And so I had to really work to come overcome that. And it's really not so much about being funny, but about being real and being in the moment and just not being afraid to do whatever comes next. And also overcoming the fear of just having a mental blank. I mean, that is the worst feeling. I've done that on live radio. And it's just it was the longest three seconds of my life, even though when I listened back to it, it was hardly there at all. But for me inside my head, it went on forever. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, when we were performing so much before the pandemic, we started just going out on stage with having no clue what we were going to do. And we just all were very brave about doing it. And I feel like we've had to get over that hesitancy now. And tonight I said, well, you know, we need to practice like we're actually doing this and not, you know, we were pretty lazy. We got pretty lazy in practicing and we took long breaks between scenes and we were sitting on the couches and we're like, no more sitting on the couches. We need to pretend like there's an audience. And and we had to build up our stamina. I said, we're not used to actually performing for an hour or an hour and a half. We're used to doing 15 minutes of scenes and saying, can we take a break? You know, (laughs) let's talk about that some more or what's going on with you. So yeah, we've had to definitely build up our stamina again. And I think we're ready. Well, as you were just we were just talking about improv is is by its definition is improvised and not scripted. But that doesn't mean that rehearsal isn't a big part and you rehearse based on a show's theme. So other than exercising your ability to think on your feet. What goes into an improv rehearsal that helps you on the night? Yeah, so lots of different things. We have warm-up where sometimes we just share about your day or what's going on with you, or we'll play like a a memory game where, you know, I'll say introduce myself and my mom and my aunt's name or something. Or we did one minute histories where I said as much as I could about myself. And then the person I'm paired up with has to then say as much as they can remember. There's a lot of remembering, especially if you throw a name out there. You'll notice sometimes we use a lot of the same names. McGillicuddy is often a name that we (laughs) use in our shows or Sandra comes out a lot. I'm always like Sarah, Linda, Janice. There's some regular names that we use just to help us along a little bit because forgetting names is a thing that you'll get stumbled up on. So memory games, listening to each other, really listening because that's so important. So uh, we'll play a game that helps us to listen to each other and recall those details or another game about thinking quickly, like it doesn't matter what you say, just say the first thing that comes to your brain. Don't think about progressing the scene, but think about just whatever comes out. Character development scene. So we have stuff that we want to work on. Being positive, not saying no, you know, to the character who's just said something, even if it's not what you wanted the direction of the scene to go. Like I'll sometimes have something in my brain and I get stuck because I'm like, that's what I want it to do. And inevitably my partner will come out. And if I don't convey what I want, you know, what's in my head quickly enough, we may go in a different direction and you have to follow them. That is one of the things that I think must be the most difficult. I mean, the improv mantra is yes and, meaning you accept what your scene partner or partners have started with and and you roll with it, even if that means, as you say, abandoning the idea that you had in your head when you walked in the scene. And I think it's that mental dexterity that always impresses me the most 
in Good Improv. And Kathleen Johnson, another of your fellow stable girls, is a absolute master at that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, how often does it happen that you walk into a scene and then have to completely cast aside what your plan was? Is that pretty much all the time? It happens a lot. And and I think what it it may not happen as much in the future because we have really gotten better at saying, well, if you don't want that to happen, then you need to state clearly <laughs> your case, who you are and what you're thinking needs to come out in the first one or two statements that you make. And if it doesn't, then that's your tough luck. You know, <laughs> then mm. you're going to need to go with what your scene partner has come up with or what they're doing. And often after we run a scene, we'll say, well, was that what you, you know, thought you, we were going to do? Or, you know, we'll go out with what the game is. Like you'll think the game is I'm a person who always says espresso and I will not say the word espresso. And I have a shop that's, you know, the espresso express. And so that's my game. And we did that one in rehearsal, so it'll probably not ever show up in a show. But that's sometimes the worst. We'll blow the best scenes. (laughs) We crack ourselves up. (laughs) If it's really good, we could bring it back on stage. But we so far, we've never run a scene that was run in, in rehearsal. We've never recycled that one. Well, you have some different basic formats that a show can take. And often you have a theme. So I think you did a Disney princess night or something. You did a teen angst movie. Mm -hmm. But for for this coming show this weekend, tell us about what format you're using for the elephant in the room and and what the theme is for that other than an elephant in the room. (laughs) (laughs) We had a couple of thoughts when we first came up with it, but it's mostly about running scenes from the props or the stage that is set. So we, when we started to practice again at Talking Horse, we would come in and, and the stage would be set up differently. You know, every couple of weeks there'd be something different, uh, a table here, a couch there. And we, so we started putting those things in our scenes and it was pretty fun because normally we just have an empty, you know, stage uh, and our, some chairs on the side that we will pull in as needed. But it was really fun to use the props that were there. And so then we got the idea of how could we get the audience involved and we would have people bring in, so selected people will bring in some props uh, that we don't know what they are and they'll be placed around the stage and we'll use those to form our ideas for scenes. So we won't know what those things are until they, they show up on Saturday night. Uh, so there's, I think there's a couch and some, a table and chairs and some random boxes. And then we have just been grabbing for practice. We just grab stuff out of our bags or our purse or out of the prop room at Talking Horse and put it out there. And I mean, Man, we came up with a funny, funny musical tonight that was just hilarious. I wish we could do that one for you. We were ready to take that one to the stage, I think. I think that could have gone on for an hour. Do you have any safe words or gestures if you are just standing there absolutely frozen that somebody knows like, oh, I need to go and rescue Stacy? <laughs> no, there are no safe <laughs> words. But there is, I think if our teammates see us out there like, totally frozen. I mean, what we try not to do is rescue people unless we really think they need to be rescued. So we never jump in just to steal the scene and be funny. Like don't ever jump in with just a funny remark because that's just kind of rude. And uh, that's not your job. 
my job isn't to make uh, wisecracks or one-liners. It's really to follow this scene to its natural conclusion. So we wait until there's an appropriate spot to jump in and close that scene with something or, you know, run across and clap and say, you know, the scene is over at a natural conclusion or at a character. Usually what you do if the scene feels like it's falling flat is you up the ante somehow emotionally. So I either bring something more, you know, dramatic in one way or another that's realistic or uh, a new character that comes in. And as you said, usually, well, in the, when you practice, you do kind of 15 minute sessions and then stop and have a rest. And even when you're doing a performance, usually you do, I don't know, 45 minutes and then mm-hmm. have a break. And this time, because COVID, <laughs> you have no intermission in which to regroup. So you have to go straight right. through for what, <laughs> 90 minutes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. How are you feeling about that? (laughs) I think it's going to be a blast. I mean, oftentimes (laughs) we just get going and, you know, it's very much adrenaline filled. And so you don't, you know, I don't really notice that the time has gone by. So um, we do have a little uh, something we're going to do in the middle to sort of break it up, but I can't talk about it. Okay, well, I have my tickets already, so I shall be there. The Stable Boys and the Elephant in the Room will be in person and fully vaccinated at Talking Horse Productions on St. James Street this Saturday, October the 9th, for one night only. Masks are required for audience members, and as I just said, there is no intermission. You can find out more at talkinghorseproductions.org. And Stacey Pottinger, it is always a treat having you to myself for a wee while. (laughs) Thank you so much. It is always lovely to talk to you. You know, I love you so much. And (laughs) make sure you come early, get your drinks so you're ready to laugh and have a good time. Okay, I'll have to buy multiple drinks for 90 minutes. Yeah, bring them all in. That's it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, musicians Audra Sergal, Phil Sean Johnson and Violet Vonderhaar from the Compass Music Centre, Arsenic and Old Lace Theatre Director Ed Elsie and the Stable Boys, Stable Girl, Stacey Pottinger. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Mm-hmm.